Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. Wherever you are, whoever you are, crypto skeptic, half believer, or enthusiast, it's really great to have you tuning in to Crypto Unstacked, where we bring you a cup of crypto every week and unstack everything from crypto finance to global macroeconomics. This podcast assumes basic knowledge of crypto and aims to explore some more advanced topics about the crypto markets, such as trading strategies, lending, and derivatives. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group. This week, I chat with Camilla Russo, founder of The Defiant and author of The Infinite Machine. Camilla joins us for the last episode of the series and shares some of the crazy stories she came across while writing about the story of Ethereum. Camilla also talks about her experience as an early user of DeFi platforms and key evolutions in DeFi she's observed over the past year. We then talk about her upbringing in Latin America and how covering several financial markets as a journalist influenced her worldview on money and her thoughts on the social money movement today. Without further ado, as always, thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's really great to have you join me on the pod. Hey, Leslie. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so honored to be chatting with an author, a journalist, and a fellow crypto enthusiast. Of course, we have a lot to cover during our conversation today. And for those of you tuning in who already know Camilla and have been following her work covering DeFi, I hope you still have a few new takeaways from our conversation today. So to kick us off, Camilla... How did you fall into the rainbow-filled world of Ethereum as a journalist? Yeah, so as a journalist, I got into crypto through Bitcoin, and I think it's common in the space. I wrote about Bitcoin first when I was at Bloomberg News covering Argentine markets in Buenos Aires. It was 2013, and there were currency controls and the inflation as there still is today in Argentina. And so I was reporting on all the different ways Argentines used to protect their savings against 25% inflation and circumvent currency controls in the country. And that's how I came across Bitcoin as it was really picking up steam in Argentina at the time. The meetups were attracting more and more people, and um, there was this rising interest by Argentines to, to use Bitcoin. And so, yeah, that's how I, I, I learned about it. I thought it was fascinating to have this parallel money that didn't depend on central banks and reckless governments devaluing their currencies. And so I remained interested in, in crypto since then. And then in 2017, I was in New York, still at Bloomberg, covering macro markets for Bloomberg's Markets Live blog. And I had the chance to write about whatever looked interesting in markets. Obviously, 2017 was a big year for crypto. You know, I took the chance to write about crypto again and started, you know, covering ICOs and the huge price increase in, in Bitcoin. And, you know, there was like all this talk about Bitcoin ETFs at the time. And, and so I started writing that for the blog and then just started covering crypto for the general Bloomberg news and TV and radio. Bloomberg readers could not get enough of crypto news at the time. <laughs> covering the space, I, I obviously started covering Ethereum as well. And by the end of the year, I decided I wanted to write a book on crypto and thought the most interesting story that hadn't been told yet was the story of Ethereum. So that's how I decided to kind of dive into the rainbow-filled world of Ethereum. <laughs> that's great. And so you published this book, The Infinite Machine, in July, which, as you say, 
tells the story of Ethereum in your words, Ethereum was the most important story to tell because no one had done it at that time. What's the craziest story about Ethereum you came across while researching for your book? Oh, there, I mean, so many crazy stories. I, I guess the first thing that surprised me about the story of Ethereum was just how much drama there was internally. I didn't know that coming in to the story, but then I quickly realized there was a lot of infighting among the co-founders, how that resulted in two of the initial co-founders leaving the project in kind of the very early stages. As a reporter at Bloomberg, I saw the outer part of the community, I guess. It always looks so you know, happy and and like idealistic and carefree. But in reality, the internal, um, the people in, involved most closely with Ethereum in the very early days, it wasn't exactly that, you know, so that was that was surprising to find out and uncover. I, I tell that in, in a lot of detail in the book, how those fights and, and how that drama went. The other like crazy story in Ethereum, I think, is the story of the DAO. Um, that's obviously a more well, well-known well part of the Ethereum history. It's still kind of crazy to think um, what happened is this project that attracted, sucked the energy out of the room in the Ethereum community at the time, kind of att- attracting 10% of total ETH, which is crazy, and, and just like got everyone involved and it's everything anyone was thinking about. And then it was this project that got hacked while it was holding over $100 million in crypto and this like counter hack that the Ethereum community organized to do with these white hat hackers, the Robin Hood group. I tell it in like, as if it was set in this space station with, you know, like the Robin Hood hackers mounted on their spaceship, trying to hack the, the original hackers. So it's a, it's an amazing story. And it had a huge impact on Ethereum's history. Like it, it resulted in the hard fork and then Ethereum classic. It was crazy. Besides that, just like, lesser known stories of like people in the community. I love Taylor Monahan's story. She's the founder of My Ether Wallet. I used her story to tell all the craziness that was happening at the start of the ICO boom. My Ether Wallet was the most used Ethereum wallet at the time. And so it was a vehicle through which people invested in ICOs. She had a really interesting perspective in this frenzy. Like she saw just how many people and how much money was pouring into the space firsthand and like real time. Her, her story was, was amazing in, in kind of reflecting that. And then there are so many characters in the book and so many stories. I think it's interesting because Ethereum is really a, a decentralized organism with people coming added and involved in different ways through like developers building applications on top or programmers building the core infrastructure, investors buying Ether, investors buying ICOs. Uh, So I have like all those different stories to kind of paint the broader, like bigger picture of Ethereum. Yeah, I love that the book brings out a really human element of Ethereum, which is a really global decentralized project, as you say, Mm -hmm. right? And I love the story you recently wrote about in Defiant Newsletter about rainbow-colored money, which uh, was about the story behind the 64 ETH that you received Mm -hmm. as a gift from an anonymous account on Twitter who had read your book and slid into your Mm -hmm. DMs and basically said, hey, I want to make a contribution in lieu of being able to actually purchase Mm -hmm. the book. And I just find this so incredible. I mean, can you share more about the story of rainbow money and what you learned about ethereum's gifting culture from this person yeah that was um that was an amazing story i got this dm on twitter from an anonymous account which had been created just like just this month maybe they created the account specifically to talk to me anonymously and they were like yeah i i i read your book i i I loved it it showed a really balanced history of Ethereum and I wasn't able to buy it but would like to make a contribution for your work. To me like the it's it's more useful for people to share their thoughts and feedback on the book and you know review it and get more people to learn about it 
than to just receive some crypto. You know, for me, that was like more useful. So I told him or her that. And, and they were like, no, please, it would really mean everything to me if you could accept this gift. They were like, it's an important part of the early blockchain culture, this kind of anonymous gifting for others' work. So in that tradition is why I want I want to make this gift. And so I was like, sure, like, <laughs> I'm not going to keep arguing. Like, that's, that's, a, that's an amazing, <laughs> yeah, that's an amazing concept. So, so that was that, that was like late at night, a couple of weeks ago. And then the next morning I wake up and I don't know, I started about my day, you know, I started writing uh, the defiant and I think, you know, I got another DM from him being like, hey, like, did you get my gift? And then I checked my my MetaMask and like, first I, I didn't really understand what I was seeing. I was like, oh, I don't really see it because <laughs> like, I didn't really get that the gift had been so, so generous, right? I like actually got it like, oh my God, there's <laughs> an extra 64 ETH in my account, which was a lot more. Like I maybe I had like one ETH or, <laughs> or so. I'm not like a big crypto holder by any means. You know, I do hold crypto to like test things for DeFi and experiment but I've never been like like an investor or anything so um that was really crazy yeah and then I was just like profusely thanking him or her and then he wrote what what you read he just like answered in this amazing column explaining the importance of of gifting in blockchain and and in ethereum and I thought it, it was a really beautiful concept that they kind of explained that a lot of attention is paid to the markets side and like the money incentive side of, of blockchain technology because it's very kind of apparent how that plays a role in, in the very core of, of blockchain. People are incentivized to secure the network because of, of these money incentives. His view or, or her view is that it's just as much about these money incentives as it is about freely sharing information, what makes blockchains work. The, the idea of, of sharing and, and gifting is at the very core of the technology. And, and he, you know, he gave um, many examples of how that's been the case throughout Ethereum's history, that people just contributing to the broader community with grants and, and, and with gifts and, and how that supported projects throughout uh so yeah I, I thought it was beautiful um i, I really recommend that anyone to head to the, the defiant and even if you don't subscribe read this one story because it, it's it's really nice yeah yeah totally agree and uh camilla since this is a series on DeFi. I'd love to start at the beginning of your journey with decentralized finance and talk about your experience as an early DeFi user. Just a few minutes ago, you talked about experimenting with DeFi. You don't hold a lot, but you hold enough. <laughs> Just to allocate to various platforms. I would love to know, you know, what is your early experience like onboarding to DeFi platforms? And do you consider yourself an active participant now? So my, my experience in the different DeFi platforms, I guess I started with with this experiment early this year called the DeFi 10, where I invested 100 DAI in 10 different DeFi protocols and 100 in MakerDAO's DSR as like a benchmark. So I wanted to do this first to see what it was like to use DeFi as just like a non-technical, non, you know, someone who's not a trader, just like a, a, a real kind of mainstream um, user. I mean, granted, I, I, I do have, um, you know, a, a little more knowledge on crypto than I guess anyone on the street, but I'm saying I'm not a developer. And, and so this is what like most people would experience DeFi as. And then second, just, you know, I thought it, it would be interesting to track the returns on, on these investments throughout the year. My, my first reaction to using these protocols is the UX UI has come a, a, a real long way. Like I think DeFi protocols are, are really easy and, and fun to use. So, you know, I think that might be surprising for, for a lot of people who have this perception 
of Ethereum dApps being really clunky and ugly and, you know, hard to use from like 2017, uh, 2016 time. But I think there's been huge progress in, in a short amount of time so that these DeFi applications, I think, are now easier to use and like better designed than many traditional fintech apps. I mean, the, the whole kind of journey into each of these applications took maybe, I don't know, 10 minutes each. It's like I was able to deposit my money in these dApps in like a couple of clicks um, without needing to give out any of my personal information, you know, it, with each one. It was just my Ethereum wallet directly connecting with the application and, you know, me choosing what I wanted to do with, with my money and confirming transactions, confirming gas, and that was it. At the time, like, it was even <laughs> easier because gas wasn't as expensive as, as it is today. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> I think, like, doing doing the same experiment today would have been considerably more expensive. But um, at the time, I think total gas cost was, like, for, like, these 11 applications, like, wasn't more than, than 10 bucks or so. So that, that was amazing to experience, just... I had already been leading the Defiant for around seven months at the time. So I was already like pretty convinced that this is the future of finance. But this kind of cemented that, that opinion because everything was so easy and, and seamless. And it just uh, felt like this is what money should, should look like and, and feel like in kind of the age of the internet and like where we've come with information and communications and obviously money has fallen behind in, in this revolution uh, but with DeFi it feels like okay it's finally catching up. Yeah so you talked about your user experience how did you assess the so-called risk reward trade-off as a first-time user of DeFi? Yeah so that was definitely you know my other takeaway uh, besides you know it, it being fast uh, cheap easy um, there was definitely a lack of risk disclaimers. And, you know, I made that like super clear in, in my post about the experiment. That was um, the, the biggest criticism I have of, of these applications because they, they focus on making everything so easy. But, and it's so easy that it's, it's a little bit scary because these things are still super, you know, early and experimental. If there's like, a very early user who doesn't really understand uh, what they're doing, they could easily end up risking a lot more money than, than they should in these applications. So I, I think there definitely needs to be more uh, risk disclaimers everywhere um, so that people understand exactly what they're doing. I think for me, kind of the risk reward is I invested a small amount of money uh, relative to like my total savings. And I think that's that's worth it for me. Like I I think in crypto because it, it's it's risky and volatile, there is a possibility of of huge upside, but there's also the possibility of losing everything, yeah. you know, and and and, not, and and losing not just what you invested, but even more if you're using leverage, for example. So it is definitely super risky, and and, and not just because of volatility, but very importantly is just smart contract risk, which is another way to say just the, the risk that the code doesn't work in the way that it's supposed to, or that it does work in the way that it's supposed to, but somebody finds a loophole and exploits an application and you end up losing money. So those are definitely things to, to keep in mind when, when, when using all these applications. Mm -hmm. How long have you been writing about DeFi as of today? Um, since June, uh, last year. So yeah. How long is that over, <laughs> over a year? You probably have a really keen eye on, you know, market trends, whatever that meant really early on in the DeFi space. Right. But over the, just the past few months, I mean, so much has emerged in terms of what people think is the next new primitive or the next new protocol. Like what are your observations about key evolutions within the space over the past year that you've been participating in it? Mm, a few key evolutions. So DeFi started 
first with with MakerDAO. I think that was kind of the foundational protocol. And Maker allowed uh, anyone to um, issue DAI, the decentralized stablecoin, by uh, putting their, their ETH and, and other uh, digital assets as collateral. Um, so, you know, it, it allowed one, uh, a decentralized stablecoin and, and also permissionless borrowing of, of this stablecoin. And later on, it also allowed people to um, deposit DAI in exchange for, um, in, you know, getting um, uh, interest rate. So that was kind of the foundational protocol. And then the next trend was building on top of that um, other lending protocols. So Compound and Aave came and, and they were the next layer. And they also allowed uh, users to deposit collateral and take out loans or um, lend out their crypto in exchange for interest rates. And they innovated by providing these tokens that represent users deposit and not only the deposits but the interest gained on those deposits so with compound was um c DAI or c tokens and with ave it was a tokens and this is just i thought a really cool innovation because it basically allows anyone to hold this kind of derivative in their wallet which is representing their deposit and and interest and allows them to do other things with it, like trade it for other crypto, uh, even use it as, as uh, collateral in, in other places. So it was a, a really kind of interesting new primitive in this space, these interest gaining tokens. And then what, what happened was that there was an additional layer of protocols that kind of optimize among all these other lending protocols. So I, I think the best example of this is Yearn Finance. It used to be I Earn, now it's Y Earn. So what it does is kind of it aggregates all these um, lending protocols and finds which one is the, the best one to deposit your stablecoin. So if you deposit, say, Dai in Yearn Finance, the application will automatically decide in which lending protocol, be it Aave, Compound, and others, you're able to get more, more yield out of that DAI. So you start seeing kind of these different layers emerge. And then there's also been a lot of progress with decentralized exchanges. So like MakerDAO was like for the lending space. I think Uniswap was for the DEX space. And the innovation there was that Uniswap allowed trading based on liquidity pools instead of on order books. What that did is, is that it really facilitated trading among any, any token across Ethereum, no matter how little volume and liquidity they had. Because, you know, these liquidity pools pair every single token with ETH. And so there's always ETH in the middle to facilitate any, any trade between tokens. And this concept uh, was invented by... Bancor, but I think Uniswap really made it popular because Bancor required BNT to trade and Uniswap didn't. And I think, you know, it just made it like the UX was a little bit easier to use than Bancor. So I think while Bancor kind of invented this concept, Uniswap really made it popular in DeFi. And now there's been so much progress and like innovation on top of what Uniswap is doing. I think like a notable example is Curve Finance, which is also like a liquidity pool based DEX, but it's focusing specifically on stable coins. So it allows for less slippage and like more efficient use of capital by focusing specifically on, on stable coins. And, and it's had like explosive growth because the experience is so good. Slippage is like the spreads are so small, even compared with a centralized exchanges. So that's been a, a great innovation. And the latest, latest trend obviously is yield farming, which, you know, we'll, we'll see where it goes. I'm just like fascinated looking at what's happened recently, but it's this concept of incentivizing liquidity and, and activity in different DeFi platforms with protocol specific tokens. So Compound kind of opened the floodgates of this uh, with its 
comp tokens. It started offering comp in exchange for people lending and, and borrowing on its platform. And comp like went to the moon <laughs> on the first day. It was distributed, and and so there was like this this frenzy to get comp, and then like many other DeFi protocols followed with with the same idea. You know, incentivizing liquidity with the platform specific tokens, and this has driven huge growth into DeFi. There was a, a billion assets locked in DeFi smart contracts in June, and, and now there's close to 7 billion. And it's been all largely due to yield farming. So before we move on to the next topic, let's take a quick break and hear a few words about Amber Group. This episode of the Crypto Unstacked podcast is presented by Amber Group. Amber Group is a fully integrated crypto finance platform offering a suite of secondary market services across trading, wealth management, and financing solutions. We are backed by some amazing investors such as Paradigm and Pantera and work with clients and partners all over the world. Head on over to ambergroup.io to learn more about us. That's A-M-B-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.io. That's an excellent overview. And I think we're really seeing the growth of money Legos. And now we're almost seeing it at a pace that we're saying, stop, like just stop innovating because there's so much going on, you know, like DeFi is probably good as it is, even if no one innovated for the next few months, we would still have enough to write about because (laughs) even the existing protocols, they're iterating, right? Mm -hmm. They're trying to figure out how to maximize things that you said, like capital efficiency, collateral efficiency across lending, trading, and investing platforms. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of (laughs) good with what we have, you know? And yeah, it's just something that you have to try in order to really understand. I think that's the takeaway for me, having interviewed a few people, you know, within the DeFi ecosystem, it's just, you have to try it. If you don't try it, then it's always going to be this mystical thing that is sort of in parallel alongside centralized finance. And I think the experience makes it much more tangible for you to mm-hmm. then critique what works and what doesn't. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Now I want to move on to talking about your worldview on money. You've lived in different countries. You've covered different financial markets. Did you have an affinity for understanding money or finance or economics as a child? So... It's interesting because I I think I was definitely influenced by the places I live and how the economy and the money was run in these places. But I wasn't actively looking to learn about finance very early on in, in my childhood. That came a little bit later. I'm from Chile, from Santiago. Chile is, I think, one of the most stable countries in in Latin America, at least until recently. You know, it it was run very conservatively. It always had really low inflation. It tended to be more capitalistic. There were open markets and things generally worked. There was a lot of economic progress and the country was moving forward. And and so I, I didn't really have to think much about monetary policy or finance or what the government was doing with money because it didn't ever really affect me growing up in Chile. I just didn't have to worry about any of that. I was always interested more in writing and arts than than in finance. That was always kind of my brother who's like a serial entrepreneur. He he was like the, the one interested in like business and finance. He was like investing in stocks when he was a teenager. So I always left that to my brother and tuned out whenever he started talking about that stuff at the table. Um, later on, I started journalism because I, I really like writing and went on to work at Chile's largest newspaper in the international news section for a year. And then I went to Northwestern in in Chicago to get a master's in journalism because I I wanted to work at a big media organization in the US. And it was in Northwestern that, you know, you had to pick a concentration and there was like politics, environment, business and other stuff. And, you know, I thought I, I really should finally learn something about 
like <laughs> business and the economy. I know this is important. This is how the world works. <laughs> I have no idea about anything. Um, so I took that concentration, not knowing anything and ended up really enjoying it, like really liking financial reporting because there was like facts, actual numbers supporting the story. So it wasn't like one person's view against another one, like with a lot of the politics stories, it was like, okay, this stock rose this much percent after this happened. So there was like actual concrete evidence for what the market was thinking. And I thought that was really cool. So I, I decided to focus on business journalism and applied for an internship at Bloomberg News and got it. And then my first year at Bloomberg, I was reporting on emerging markets and then I was sent to Argentina. Like I said earlier, it was Argentina, my experience living there, what really kind of made me become really interested in how money works, you know, like how governments and central banks can influence money. Because unlike in Chile, where I didn't have to worry about any of that, in Argentina, like economic mismanagement had a real effect on everyone's lives. Um, so as an example, as soon as I got to, to Argentina, my colleagues at Bloomberg News told me, when you get your salary in pesos, you need to exchange it for dollars right away. So this is something that everyone was doing. First thing they told any newcomer in, into the country, just like, don't, don't hold any, any pesos, exchange them for dollars right away. And this is something that Argentines have lived with for decades. They think in dollars because uh, the peso has always been going down. Like it's always depreciating. I mean, if, if there's one thing you can be sure of in Argentina is that the, the peso is going to depreciate, <laughs> which is really sad. But I mean, it's crazy. And they live with 25% inflation, which, you know, sounds like an abstract thing. But in reality, what it means is that the money you hold at the beginning of the year will be able to get you, you know, buy fewer things at the end of the year. So that's why, you know, Argentines are always buying dollars. And because everyone was buying dollars and taking dollars out of the country and Argentina, you know, has a lot of dollar bonds to pay imports, like it obviously needs dollars, but people were, you know, taking them out and buying them. The president, Cristina Fernandez, needed to uh, stop this from happening and so just prohibited people from from buying dollars <laughs> and um, it's kind of like a crazy patch solution but governments do this they just like they're able to tell you what you can do with your money and and for me experiencing that was was really crazy just you know I, I was at the Bloomberg office uh, reporting on this announcement as it happened, you know, Christina saying, oh, now I'm I'm banning foreign currency purchases. And then I actually saw it on my own bank that before I was able to transfer between my like local currency and foreign currency account like online, and now I wasn't able to, and, and that was it, you know? <laughs> so whatever pesos I had in, in my bank, I was stuck with. So I, I had to like go through what Argentines had gone through before, which was going to buy dollars in the black market. And it's crazy. Uh, it's such a like big part of life there. Like you go downtown and there are people, they call these people little trees because they, they're like lining the sidewalks. In, in downtown Buenos Aires, like, you know, like trees. So they call them arbolitos. And they're just like standing there, like saying like, dollar, dollar. <laughs> and, and you just go up to them and be like, okay, yeah, I want to like, wanna buy 200 bucks. And then they'll take you to like the backside of like some store. Oh and, my gosh. And like, yeah. <laughs> and then you're walking around with like a bunch of dollars. Also, like to rent an apartment, like usually landlords only take dollars. And because you, you only have then black market to buy dollars, you need to like pay it in cash. All these like crazy things happen just because the government is populist and is printing a bunch of pesos to subsidize different things and to fund like infrastructure projects that it can't pay for. In the end, devaluing it, its currency and, and creating inflation. I was reporting on all this every day with Bloomberg and, you know, I just thought it, it was it was fascinating how huge of an impact decisions like like this can have and what central banks can do to their currencies what governments can do you know what different 
economic theories, the impact that they have in, in the economy, you know, the difference between a populist government and like a more conservative one and capitalism and socialism. Like I, I really started kind of investigating like all the differences and I lived through a more populist, like socialist. I don't know if you can say socialist because in the end it's just populism. And I saw how horrible it is for the economy. So in Chile now, there's like this trend toward populism. I don't know if people remember, but last year in, in October, there were huge protests in Chile where people were destroying everything, just like burning things down. And it was really horrible and kind of protesting against the system, you know, saying we need a more kind of like fair distribution of wealth and all these arguments, which sound a lot like what Argentina and Venezuela say they're trying to do. But, you know, in the end, I lived through what that actually means for people. When governments start saying they will start redistributing and giving things away and start with this rhetoric, in the end, what it does is it, it leaves people the worst off. So it's the opposite. It's like these governments that are said to be for the people are usually end up being much worse for, for the people. So that's why when I was talking about Chile, I was talking like in the past tense, it was conservative, things used to work because now like I'm not sure if that's still going to be the case and it's it's really scary. Yeah, that political landscape is changing really quickly. And if anything, that's the theme of 2020, right? You were talking about the protests in Chile in 2019. And I was thinking in my head, that's exactly what's going on now, like all over the world. <laughs> I think it really just comes down to ownership of money and people mm -hmm. demanding that now for themselves. And being in crypto, we perhaps take that for granted because that is sort of a mantra, right? Mm -hmm. And especially when it comes to DeFi, you know, social money has been a really hot topic as of late. And it is an extension of this idea of having more ownership of your money, uh, understanding how you can perhaps self-monetize, you know, kind of in the spirit of experimentation in DeFi, how you do that in a way that isn't tied to anything else but yourself mm. um, and, and being able to find ways to allow others to have a stake in the growth of your own personal value. Mm -hmm. And I think this is just beautiful, especially when we talk about the concept of a personal token. I know you did a recent podcast with Alex Vasmanch mm -hmm. uh, recently, which was great. And, you know, you yourself, you launched um, your own Kemi coin uh, some, some time ago. So yeah, would love for you to talk about what you were looking to experiment with, with the launch of Kemi coin, what was your experience like designing your own monetary policies through the governments? Like, you know, in terms of just kind of figuring out how you were going to connect with potential token holders, you know, your potential community with the Defiant, for example, what that whole experience was like for you? Yeah. So, I mean, ju just to kind of pick up what you said before, I think you're, you're totally right that it comes down to uh, controlling um, your your assets and um, you know I think that's that's what many many people are, are protesting against or if not protesting at least kind of realizing that the the, the current system that, that we're living in right now doesn't give you that much opportunity to really gain control over your own assets and crypto does so I I hope that you know more people open their eyes to this possibility and, and just kind of give it a chance. You know, there's like this alternative system that actually allows you to to own your money and control your money and, and you don't need to trust anyone else to do it because sometimes they, they will do the right thing, but other times they won't. It's kind of scary to not have any say over over that you know like one day they they might flip a switch and say you can't buy dollars anymore like mm -hmm. what happened to me in argentina so i think it's amazing to have this alternative of actually owning your asset and being able to experiment with money in the way that ethereum is is allowing people to so yeah that's the idea with personal tokens so I, I guess like a little bit of background is that I, I had always wanted to kind of issue Kami coin, even like 
back at, at Bloomberg when I was covering ICOs, I was like, wow, let's let's do a story where I try to do my own ICO and like <laughs> <laughs> issue Kami and like see what happens. But in the end, kind of, I think with like with reason, like Bloomberg editors were like scared about like the legal side of things and, you know, well, the SEC say you're, we're selling securities here. Um, so we didn't end up doing it. But this year, I saw this, this project called Roll, R-O-L-L. And they, they really make the, the process of um, issuing your own uh, personal uh, token really easy. Anyone is free to issue any ERC-20 token on Ethereum and name it whatever they want and create a market for it. But it does require at least, you know, some level of technical skill. What this application does is it just makes it really easy for anyone to do this. Like I was able to do it like, I don't know, in a few minutes and issue Kami coin and, and they kind of you are able to decide on like monetary policy, but I just took their like <laughs> settings and yeah. And it was, I, I, there's like um, a fixed amount of, of Kami that will ever be issued. Roll sent a fixed amount of this every few weeks or so. So like I keep getting like new Kami to, to distribute every so often until, you know, there, there's a time that there just won't be any, any more Kami to, to distribute. I saw this project, I thought, you know, what an amazing idea to like make it easy for anyone to issue their own token. I saw how, how people were, were using them to strengthen their communities. And for example, there's an artist, she has the personal token Hue, and she, you know, she was using the token to, she was ac accepting this token to sell her own art. So, you know, if, if you have a community of people who are following your work and they're all kind of holding your, your token, it creates kind of this sense of community. And it also is a way of, of rewarding different actions that you usually wouldn't use money for. So the first things I experimented with was share the defiant and I'll send you Kami coins. So, you know, I, I did this for, for a while where anyone who, who shared the, the Defiant, they would send me kind of a, um, a link to whatever the tweet they, they did. And with that, I, you know, and, and like their, their address and, and with that, I would send them Kami. Um, and then like another, another experiment I, I did was uh, just like uh, setting a price for for the defined subscription in, in Kami and um, a couple of people were, were able to buy um, a subscription to the defiant with, with Kami coin. Um, so, and then oh, another experiment I did was when I set up the, the defiant um, Twitter account, I said the first um, hundred followers to the account will get Kami. <laughs> so, you know, I got a hundred followers really quickly. Um, so it, it's things like that, like stuff that you, well, I guess like the Defiant subscription, obviously I, I do take money for that, but like, you know, sharing the Defiant, like following uh, the Twitter account, like that sort of thing are like activities and like behavior that you want to incentivize, but that you wouldn't normally use money for. But that a token is like a great way to to reward and incentivize that those kinds of behaviors, and you know it, it it's cool to to have um, this this tool to kind of strengthen <clears throat> your community. And then I I recently people have taken it um, you know a step further and and created kind of permissioned um, exclusive chats where. It's really cool. Um, there's there's this team who developed um, like a, I guess like a, a bot or something that is able to check on a, a Telegram chat and a Discord channel, check whether the the people who want to join hold the required token, and so they're only able to join the exclusive chat if they hold this token. It's kind of another way of of strengthening community. Like oh, only people. Maybe, you know, it's something that I would do in the future. Only people who have Kami coins are able to join this chat. And, and like that way, all of my followers can have, have a way to 
interact more directly. This hasn't been live even even for a year. So you know, we're just seeing kind of the very early experiments with this, but I definitely think it's something that has legs. You know, there, there I, I see many, many, many use cases for this. And then KamiCoin is a more, it, it's a token to, to kind of, yeah, incentivize uh, behavior and, and strengthen community. But there are other people who are using personal tokens to actually raise real money and, and sort of like self IPO, IPOs. And that's what um, Alex did, who, who you mentioned, you know, he, he raised uh, $20,000 uh, in exchange for Alex tokens as a way to fund some of his living expenses as he begins to build his startup. So that's definitely, you know, another huge use case for this. People being able to fundraise, not like through a specific project, but through themselves, like people be believing in, in the person, like funding the person and believing in, in what they will build even before they build it. So it will be interesting to see how, how that plays out, but it's, it's been working out so far. There's obviously kind of questions about where it stands in regulation and we'll see. I think it is kind of a gray area if you're like fundraising and like promising future revenue. I think it's a little bit dicey. Like I'd be careful with that, but I mean, certainly super interesting to see. Yeah, super cool. I'm kind of getting jealous. I, I want my own token now, uh, now that I know about Roll. <laughs> so I'll, I'll definitely go go check them out. But Camilla, as we wrap up here, you know, I did want to ask you more about your experience starting The Defiant. You've got a newsletter on Substack, a podcast, a YouTube channel. I'm sure there are more things to come. So how has running The Defiant changed your thinking on what it's like being an entrepreneur and, you know, what do you find comes naturally to you in building your own brand and media empire, if I can call it that? <laughs> I hope future media empire for sure. It's been, you know, an incredible experience to go from being um, a reporter employed uh, person at, at, at Bloomberg and and just like not having to worry about anything but writing stories and doing interviews and stuff to doing all that and also running a company has been incredible. Uh, it's always been a dream of mine to, to build something of my own. It's something that's been common in my family and that I've, I've had around for since I was little. Uh, just like Many people in, in my family start their own companies. Like I mentioned, my brother is has been an entrepreneur for a long time. Um, my my mom and, and now my dad recently. So it's like it, it looked like everyone around me was starting a company. <laughs> yeah, but but me. Um, and and so you know it, it's it's something that I, I really wanted to do. Just like instead of creating all this this value and and content for someone else uh i i really wanted to do it for me and work on something that made sense for me and that was my own vision and it's incredible to be doing that i kind of like knew what i was getting into but you can never be prepared for just the crazy amount of work that it is because i've recently added um contributors to the defiant who are a huge huge help in publishing the newsletter almost every day and and keeping you know, high, high quality content there. Um, mm -hmm. But before I was doing that all by myself and also, you know, trying to do kind of the marketing, which was really, you know, me tweeting out everything, you know, every, everything I published on, on the Defiant and also thinking of like business strategy and like uh, subscribers and sponsors, then adding different, different content platforms like I added the Defiant podcast, the YouTube channel, and thinking about kind of a website to host everything and doing all of that. And it was hard to prepare for the amount of work and like organization it takes, especially starting out when, when I'm really doing this by myself. Contributors are, are amazing, but in the end, you know, they're all doing different things and the Defiant is not their only preoccupation like, like it is for me. So I hope soon I'll be able to take someone someone else full time, and and that will be great to have someone someone to kind of discuss all this with because 
the other thing is, you know, it's it's um it's a lot to kind of think of everything that that I want to do with, with the Defiant and just have kind of myself as a sounding board. Like, yeah, I, I talk about this with like my, my partner and like my mom and yeah, sometimes my contributors, <laughs> but it'd be great. Like I'm looking forward to the day where I can take on like a, a small team and, and just, you know, talk about the future of the Defiant with them and have them kind of more, more involved. But yeah, so I guess like, yeah, no, nobody can prepare you for the um, amount of work um, a startup is and and the level of organization uh, you need to have to kind of tackle all the different parts of, of running a business. And then I think the other the other part that was like a nice surprise was I really enjoy having um, my my contributors. Like I, I really enjoy having this team of people who are interested in, in, in building the Defiant and writing for it. Like before at Bloomberg, I, I never wanted to take an editing position because I mean, I like journalism for writing and, and reporting, but I don't know, like I really enjoyed editing people's writing for for the Defiant. I, I didn't expect that that I would. It's It's been a really fun discovery to take on that that more kind of management like editing editing role so yeah it's it's really like made me discover so many different things about myself too just like professionally on, on like oh like I actually do enjoy kind of managing a team and, and like editing things like not just writing for myself and I keep testing myself like am I gonna be able to do this you know like so far it's it's uh, worked out great but it's a uh, it's a huge challenge and I'm really happy to be taking it. That's definitely incredible. And I really look forward to seeing what's next for The Defiant and, and for yourself, of course. Camilla, it's been a pleasure. How can our listeners get in touch with you and learn more about your work at The Defiant? Yeah, so I'm mostly on, on Twitter. Um, my my Twitter name is Camiruso, C-A-M-I-R-U-S-S-O. And um, yeah, you can subscribe to The Defiant. It's thedefiant.substack.com. And yeah, you can get my book, The Infinite Machine, on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. I don't know, most major like <laughs> book uh, sellers. Yeah, please, please reach out with any any questions on DeFi, Ethereum, or yeah, anything. Great. Well, Camilla, I'm so glad you can come on the show to close out our DeFi Defined series and to quote the now famous DeFi meme. Keep up the honest work <laughs> and look forward to catching up again with you very soon. Yeah, thanks so much, Leslie. This was super fun. As always, hope you enjoyed this week's Cup of Crypto. If you like what you heard, please share and subscribe on Spotify and anchor.fm slash crypto unstacked. Do engage with us through social media. I'll provide details in the show notes and connect with me on Twitter at Les Lambo. That's L-E-S-L-A-M-B-0. Would love to chat with you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take care and see you at our next episode.